Hello and welcome to the Public Procurement Podcast with me, Pedro Teles. The interviewee today is Dr. Richard Craven from the University of Leicester. Richard and I both did our PhDs at the University of Nottingham a few years ago under supervision of Professor Sue Arrowsmith and Professor David Fraser. We used research methods borrowed from social sciences in our PhDs, trying to see the law in action instead of the law in the books. The topic for today's conversation is the use of different research methods to answer legal questions connected with public procurement, instead of the more traditional legal analysis. I think this will be more of an informal conversation than an actual interview, as both of us have something to say about the topic. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Pedro. Thank you. It's great to have you here. We've known each other for a few years, but uh, I think it's the first time that we are getting back together and talking about procurement and procurement research methods. Yeah. Let's start with your PhD. What research did you do for your PhD and what methods did you use? Okay. So my PhD, completed in 2012, looked at the legal framework in the UK for regulating public-private partnerships. So what we know is competitive dialogue. And then, as you said, it wasn't just a case of looking at the law in books, so looking at case law, looking at what the legislation said about how people are supposed to behave. It was more we went out into practice and conducted interviews with lawyers, interpreting and applying the rules in practice, policymakers and procurement officers and contracting authorities. So I suppose just to see how what sort of legal uncertainties were being interpreted in practice and how difficult areas maybe where we might not want to comply with the rules, how, how that was approached in practice. And yeah, so really just that sort of, yeah, law in books to law in action type approach. I mean, that's very similar to the research I've done and that I did in 2010, that I finished in 2010 for my PhD. I also was looking forward to see how competitive dialogue had been implemented and was being used in practice in Portugal and Spain. What I found it very interesting is that it's very different from watching or seeing the law being deployed in action by agents that are actually uh, using and uh, sometimes abusing the law in comparison with what you can read in the books, what you can see, read, let's say, in the directives or in the laws and regulations. Yeah, same here, really. I think probably in the UK, I think there was a lot of, say, reporting in trade press that competitive dialogue was causing problems in practice, but I think it was about seeing, oh, well, why were those problems being caused? How was it being interpreted maybe to cause those problems and what strategies were adopted to get around it? So, yeah, it was fascinating, really, coming from sort of a law background. You know, you're always studying laws and, well, what are these legal rules? And then to sort of take a completely different perspective that uh, actually the law is what people are doing in practice, not necessarily what it says in the books. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I remember back in 2004, 2005, let's say, or 2006, maybe, the commission saying in an uh, in interpretative communication or whatever about competitive dialogues using some made-up examples of where the competitive dialogue could be used. For example, if a contracting authority wasn't sure to use a bridge or a tunnel to cross a river, those kind of examples which made perhaps perfect sense in theory and for the people that were involved in, in, in drafting first the directive 2004-18 and then obviously that communication or interpretation, then in practice there was no correspondence with reality. I mean, I've never seen an example where that kind of problem actually happened in practice. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And I ho hopefully then, I suppose, that's what our PhDs contributed to good policymaking because we've seen the law 
reform now to something that's maybe a bit more commercially sensible. I think originally, with that, those commission interpretations, the law wasn't being interpreted in a, sort of a, a way that was relevant for practice. And it was because of that sort of research, and we weren't the only ones, but sort of highlighting that sort of mismatch between the, yeah, you know, maybe for transparency reasons, we might like to have these rules, but for commercially sensible reasons, it's just not going to work necessarily. So, yeah, I completely agree there. Well, that takes me to the second question, which is, what can we say that is wrong or limited with purely black letter or doctrinal analysis? Well, I don't want to be too critical of doctrinal analysis. You know, I enjoy reading doctrinal analysis, and it sort of obviously it's, it sets up my work to do empirical research. But I think it's always that it, it can only take us so far, and particularly with public procurement in the UK as well, where we have limited case law, we have legislation that's uncertain in areas and complicated, and also a lot of guidance documents, so what we might call soft law, so you don't have to apply uh, comply with it. But, you know, is it authoritative in some sense? So a black-letter legal analysis can, you know, it can tell you what the law might be, but actually it can't tell you what the reality of the law is, what's actually happening out there. So, yeah, it can only take us so far, really. Yeah, but I think that is a very important point to make and a very important limitation to highlight, which is it only takes us this far, but then it doesn't allow us to actually know how the law is being used in practice and how to improve it. Because at the end of the day, to a certain extent, black letter analysis is little more than just opinion. Yes, it's a legal opinion, but it's only that. Yeah, I can only agree. Yeah, it's it's just one side of it, and you know, you can there's some sort of great academic debates that go on and say public procurement, public law, but if Practice just isn't happening in line with that. So it's, as I say, just limited value, isn't it? Yeah. Personally, I am always much more interested, perhaps because I used to be a, a lawyer before I became an academic, I'm always more interested in looking at it, what is the job to be done that a certain piece of legislation is trying to solve and see if it's actually solving it in practice. Looking at in reality what it is doing instead of what people wanted it to do from the outset. Definitely. And, it, and, and I suppose it's in the UK, I suppose it's just a, a modern way of doing things as well. So we've always sort of legal researchers have always favoured doctrinal analysis. And it's only more recently that we're sort of embracing social science methods, uh, which can only be a good thing. Well, to be honest, I mean, it's much easier and to a certain extent cheaper as well and less time consuming to be doing just black letter analysis instead of doing empirical research. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I have colleagues complain that, you know, with doctrinal analysis, they can't apply for funding and what have you, whereas actually empirical researchers, we can always make a case for funding, which I think is always viewed quite positively. Yeah, that's true. I hear the same thing um, both here in Swansea, where I am now, and also at Bangor University, where I was before. The colleagues with the more traditional skill set in terms of, uh, of legal academia, they find it very difficult in this day and age to find funding. I think it just shows you what sort of, you know, policymakers, they want that. They want to know what's happening out there. They don't just want to know the particular sort of viewpoint or analysis of one, one person necessarily. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, moving on to another question. Why should we be using mixed methods for legal research? What are the pros and cons of doing it? 
I suppose we, we, I mean, we've outlined the pros to a certain extent. Well, some of them at least. Yeah. And I suppose some of the cons as well in terms of the sort of the expense and the time. I think also, uh, without wishing to be critical of black letter analysis, because, or overly critical, I think in the same way black letter legal analysis can be, empirical research can be done very badly. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's only good if it's done sort of quite robustly, you know, you've got a strong methodology there. And I think if it's not done that, it's very easy to pull apart and it's just time wasted. So, I, you know, I don't think it's something people should just, or researchers should just jump into. I think it's, it is quite hard to do and, it's, and it needs to be done correctly. But the pros there, I mean, as we've said, it's in terms of what it tells you about the law and what is happening out there and the way it can inform policy and show where legal rules might not be achieving their, what they're intended to achieve. I don't think there's any uh, better, well, the alternative being black letter would not be a suitable approach for that. I think you've made a very good point there about the difficulty of doing empirical research well. That is one of the limitations that we have in legal academia is that by and large in the undergrad studies and then even at the postgrad level, by and large, we do not foster in the students the development of uh, research skills other than the traditional legal research skills. Yeah. And I think that is a very important constraint that we have then further down the pipeline when people start doing their own research in the PhD or even after the PhDs when they become uh, early career academics, it becomes very hard to retrain and regain those skills that were not gained perhaps in the moment they should have been gained. Yeah. I noticed that, for example, not exactly as much with, um, with empirical research, but certainly with uh, more economics-minded research. When I try to blend law and economics, I can easily get to the limits of my knowledge and the limits of my ability of doing that kind of mixed methods research, which I'm really interested in doing. But because I do not have the right background in terms of quantitative skills, it becomes really, really hard to do it well. Mm. I think there's a lot to be said there. But um, at the same time, though, I mean, I think it's empirical research is never going to be perfect. Is it? It's just about sort of justifying what you've done. And there's always, if you don't like the findings, of particular empirical findings, I'm sure you can find some faults in the methodology somewhere and pull it apart. About it. But I suppose that's just the nature of it. So never, it's never going to be perfect, but it does need to have that sort of that strength behind it, that as a sort of solid foundations. And it, yeah, I think the more academics are trained in it and I think universities do provide that sort of training now more and more so the better on that note what have you liked to have known at the beginning of the of your PhD that you know now about research methods especially empirical research methods I think it's probably that that it's not going to be perfect and things are going to go wrong you know maybe interviews are going (laughs) to that are arranged are going to fall through and You know the interviews aren't going to say that the interviewees aren't going to say the sort of things that you expect them to say, or maybe you want them to say if it's going to fit with a hypothesis. Did you have problems with that? I didn't, but I think you, you're just worrying the whole way through because it feels so messy. You know, it doesn't feel. You know, I think doctrinal research. I think it often feels like you're in control or more in control, whereas empirical research does. 
doesn't always feel that way because it's so dependent, you know, so sort of spanning over maybe a couple of years and it's so, yes, just hoping people contribute and participate in, in, in your research. But, but I, you know, I've, I've sort of read around, you know, afterwards about other sort of empirical studies, sort of famous empirical studies in different areas. And that's really what they talk about. So, so you know, you have this book at the end that sort of details this amazing research, but actually in getting those findings, it was not an easy process and it did feel messy at times. So it would have been good to know that. It would have been reassuring to know that. Well, I can certainly relate to that experience. I remember effectively discovering the main finding of my empirical research literally at the dying stage of the research stage when I was doing my final interviews. And it was actually my last interview in person that I did. Uh, I still had a few other ones to do over Skype or phone or something like that. But I remember going into that interview and still thinking, I still need something. There's something here that I'm not getting. And I just had that eureka moment after the, the, the final interview, the final uh, in-person interview. Yeah, I think any empirical research will sort of relate with that. And I suppose another thing that I would do differently is just keep on top of all my data a bit a bit better. I think as I was going through, I was sort of taking these interviews down and wasn't sort of transcribing them straight away and letting them, you know. Really? Yeah, as well, occasionally. And I think it is important to sort of just interview, transcribe, and let that feed into the next interview. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I learned to do right from the start, yeah. which was to transcribe the interview as soon as possible after the interview taken, has taken place, where everything is still fresh. Yeah, yeah. I never had any any technical problems, but um, if you try to transcribe the interview much later after you've done it, and you find out that, for example, whatever technology, piece of technology you were using was not working, in that mm -hmm. scenario, you're pretty much screwed. <laughs> you are, yeah. <laughs> I was quite fortunate, though. It was all on a digital recorder, and uh, thank goodness. Lesson learned. Yeah. <laughs> what about, let's say, other mixed methods research, like um, economics, for example? Have you ever been attracted to that? No, not really, just because I, I suppose it just hasn't been something that... Um, I've really sort of encountered in my studies, so it's just been a sort of natural progression to get where I am. And I see myself more as a qualitative researcher. I think I'm more interested in people, you know, how people respond to legal rules. So that's what, I mean, you know, sort of just regulation more broadly. So I think just following my interests, it's got me to there. But we've still sort of gone off and sort of continued the empirical line of things. So, so rather than law and economics, it has we've been recently researching into litigation behaviour. So, for example, why case law on public procurement is so limited in the UK? And that was more sort of questionnaires and, and, and numbers involved with also interviews. What did you find on that one? A number of findings, actually. So looking at behaviour, we're looking at sort of numbers. I think an overall finding that was that there was limited case law because actually many suppliers didn't see any reason for litigating. Actually, they were fairly happy with the process, which actually was, which was quite an interesting finding. And you're, you know, maybe not feeling a need to pursue a challenge where there was only a slight technical breach. But then along with that, just the usual sort of reasons for, for not bringing a challenge being sort of cost of litigation and fear of upsetting um, 
you know, biting the hand that feeds, upsetting the public sector who you might be working with, might be bidding for further contracts from. The famous fear of blacklisting. Yes. In a sense, that doesn't seem very different from the research that Despina Pashno did uh, maybe 15 years ago or 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of uh, building on her research, really, but it's sort of a, a modern, you know, her, uh, Despina's research was sort of pre, I suppose... Uh, remedies Directive. Remedies Directive, yeah. pre sort of financial fallout, uh, if that had any impact. But yeah, it was just basically saying, well, has it all changed now? And actually it hasn't changed. Is still the sort of those the sort of main deterrence to litigation might sort of cost time. Actually, there not being appropriate remedies in place, or people not feeling that there are appropriate remedies in place or attainable remedies in place. Those are all sort of limiting in, in the same way. Another big factor being the sort of the approach the UK has to um, interim relief and yeah. sort of cross undertaking and damages being a requirement. Would seem to be a real inhibitor. I find this fascinating because I trained and worked in completely different um, jurisdiction. Uh, in Portugal, is the polar opposite. Uh, yeah. I mean, as a lawyer, doing litigation of public procurement cases was my bread and butter. <laughs> I did probably dozens in a couple of years, and I was only obviously only one lawyer or one trainee at the time, whatever. But. Uh, That certainly surprised me when I came to the UK and people said, no, 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 we don't litigate in the UK in public procurement. But I suppose, uh, you know, we, the research is basically, you know, these remedies rules, we're looking at the effectiveness of those, those remedies, yeah. why people won't be suing. But I don't think that, I, you know, I think I'm working with Sue Arrowsmith on, on this. It's not not just me. And I think we, we're both the, the, the opinion that actually the best system in place wouldn't be that, You know, you'd have something like maybe you have in Portugal or even in, I was in Denmark recently and they were talking about how litigious it is there. And, you know, it just doesn't seem like the right system that you have just suppliers suing for every sort of minor breach. But that's what we that's what the, we seem to be trying to achieve, you know, yeah. Yeah, but the, the problem with a system like the one we have in the UK where there's limited enforcement in the in, in the courts it means that the contracting authorities can do whatever they want and there's a limited risk that they're going to be caught and that changes the way that people behave well yes and no i think with these technical rules it's not always the case though that you know the example i was, I was talking to someone in, in denmark recently and they were saying how you know just these minor sort of infringements mean that they um a procurement is just getting shut down for sort of a, a matter of months as it progresses through the courts. And you think, well, that can't be the right approach. You know, where somebody's not doing something to get around the rules, maybe it's just because, you know, procurement, like we said with empirical research, it's not, you know, it's not always so exact and you can say that this is, you know, it's not going to flow easily, is it? It's just sort of, it can be quite... I don't want to say messy, but it, you know, it can't, they're difficult, yeah. aren't they? And then, and then, you know, especially when they stretch over time. So whether you know whether it should be that the supplier is going to jump on you every single, you know, every step wrong you make uh, just can't be the right system, I think. But it's the system we have. I have to say that I'm a huge fan of the Canadian system of having a procurement ombudsman. I've had Frank Brunetto, who's the outgoing Canadian procurement ombudsman on, on the podcast at um, at an early stage. And I think it's a great system, actually. 
it helps diffuse a number of potential issues before they reach the courts. Yeah. In the UK, we've got the Mystery Shopper service, which may evolve in that direction. Although I doubt it that it will ever be called procurement ombudsman kind yeah. of type of system. Yeah. But uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. I think it's a very good uh, system and, and we should, in Europe, we should look more closely into it. Speaking about your projects, what else are you doing? Well, in addition to that, we are just starting some further empirical research into the protection of workers on government contracts. So I'd like to interview procurement officers in relation to that and, and, and lawyers, if they, if they happen to be listening in the UK. Um, yeah, just looking at, I suppose, just compliance with legal requirements on uh, public contracts, the way in which that might be achieved through the procurement process and on the procurement contract. Are you doing it by yourself or are you collaborating with other colleagues? That, that's just me at the moment, yeah. Okay. Why do you think public procurement is a good area to do mixed methods research? I suppose because it's there's so much to do. You've got uncertain rules that you know leave a lot of scope for interpretation. So how are those rules being interpreted? I think it's just it's an important area, so it matters to people. So if you're thinking about public services and and having value for money, public services, well, and how that affects people, whether it be procurement officers, suppliers, or the general public, I think those views are important. And it's an area really that just, uh, is just not really being touched by empirical legal researchers, at least. So those who actually n- know something about this complicated area of law and can go and look at and look at it in practice. I think I, I know there's a, a few business academics who, who have a look at it, and economists, and that's very interesting. But actually, from legal academics, it's you know sort of there's a lot to do because it's not being covered. Very well. One final question. How do you break down the barriers between different disciplines? Yeah, well, I mean, as, as I mentioned before we sort of started, started recording, I'd be very interested to hear your views on this. But uh, I suppose for me, uh, I think collaboration between individuals is a good starting point. And I, and I think that's very difficult. But, you know, just putting yourself with, say, a social scientist and an economist, and you can both bring something to the table there. But it's difficult. And you can see, actually, with some of these uh, research projects that people are forming teams, and I think, you know, everybody bringing something in from, from their particular discipline. That, that definitely seems like the way forward. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. I, there's only so much we can do to retrain ourselves to do research that we haven't been trained before to do, especially as you go on and onwards with your career and you have certain, let's say, sunken costs on a certain career path. You have also other commitments uh, that you don't don't have, for example, while you're an, obviously an undergrad or a PhD student. So it makes it really difficult for you to pick up new uh, research skills as you go onwards with your career. So I think, in a way, I mean, collaboration is certainly a way forward. But the problem I have with collaboration or the problem I've seen with collaboration is that it's very difficult to break down the silos between different disciplines. Because social scientists look at us when you try to do, do legal research using social sciences methods as being second-class citizens because we don't have as much experience and knowledge about the methods as they have. And it's a fair comment to make to many of us. And the same thing with economics. So if you try to do uh, stuff with economists, what we can have, and I've, I've heard this from colleagues of mine, which is what is in there for us? Because if we want to, to publish in top uh, in top ranking economics journals, 
by and large, all of them are pure economics journals that do not touch mixed methods research. So that the opportunity cost of doing mixed methods research becomes very, very costly. And it's very hard to find the right people with the right skills and the right attitude to break down that silos. Because if you think about how we are assessed in the UK in terms of research, we are still assessed, by and large, in a very traditional silo way. I mean, if you're going to be put forward for the research excellence framework, we're going to go in the law panel. And by and large, again, in general, the people there will have a traditional legal background, although actually the, the law panel is more mixed than, um, than others. But on the economic side, it's just, just economists, economists, and no one else. Yeah, I agree. So it needs some sort of fundamental change somewhere. Definitely. But I think, I think uh, things are changing slowly. You know, when you look at what funders, and, you know, we're guided by that now, you know, impact and, and funders yeah. and universities. It is just pushing you towards, I think, collaboration and, and you know, mixed methods, you know, working with different disciplines. Um, so it's only a matter of time, I think. Okay. One final question. What kind of research or type of research you'd like to do in the near future that you haven't been able to do yet? Well, uh, I suppose without giving too much away, I'm sort of uh, linking back to maybe one of your other podcasts, actually. There was a, I think you've done a podcast with Amy Ludlow. Yep. Yeah, so I was really um, intrigued by that sort of the uh, ethnography angle. I don't know what she meant to say, sort of just observation. You know, just putting yourself in the environment, so you're just going beyond, say, interviews with individuals, and for example, you know, seeing the procurement process firsthand. And so, I'd quite like to do research there. Maybe looking at sort of the, the way in which central governments have tried to achieve some broader policies, like localism or big society, through procurement, and try and bring in some ethnography there, observation. I think that's a very good way to finish the podcast thank you very much richard oh thank you very much you can find me at my blog tells.eu or on twitter where i use two handles at the tick for general discussion and at public procure for public procurement related topics as ever i'm grateful for the support of the british academy rising star engagement awards which made possible this project see you next time